Welcome to the PhD and Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to just send out a quick thank you to everyone who's been getting in touch with us. We've gotten some Facebook messages, emails. Uh, some people have gotten in touch with us on Instagram. I just wanted to say we really appreciate it. We've gotten some really valuable feedback and some interesting questions that we want to discuss on some later episodes. So stay tuned for that and keep sending us your thoughts. Uh, we really appreciate them. Thank you so much. Yeah, we really do. It's really rewarding to see that we're not only talking to people within the United States, but all around the world. I think that's really amazing. And I really appreciate the support. So that being said, we were thinking about talking about the job market because it is that time of year. And in our field, the job list recently was revealed to us. And we really want to talk about that more. But we both have started school recently, and we felt the need to really discuss and share that at length in this episode because we have talked so much about thinking about what back to school is going to look like in the middle of this pandemic and what that will look like not only for parents, but for those of us that work in higher education as well. And now it's happening, and there's just so much to talk about around the country. And so really, we wanted to start with a personal. Um, and so, Judith, I really wanted to know what your fall is looking like now. What happened with your children? How is that impacting your work schedule? What are the challenges? And are there any successes right now? Uh, that's a lot of questions. Uh, for my older daughter, who's a third grader now, we had the option of doing face-to-face -face or online. And because the numbers had been really, really low since the beginning of the epidemic here, we felt confident that it would be okay for her to go back to school. There's a lot for us to talk about here in this episode, but just briefly um, outlining the when the pandemic started, the local college here that I've talked about before was on uh, spring break. They did not have their students come back from spring break. And so our numbers had been under 200 for the entire county for the almost the entire time. The college started up again August 18th, so that's been either two or three weeks. I'm not entirely sure, and our numbers have already jumped from just under 200 to over 500. Wow. And so th there's a lot going on with that that I have a need to talk about. However, so far, just in terms of what my daughter is going through at school, it seems to be going pretty well. She's very excited to be back. I am struggling a little bit. One of the main problems that I have that I think is pretty normal for a for first week of school is just the logistics of pickups and drop-offs. They're staggered. The My son's daycare and my daughter's school are about a, are a couple blocks away from each other, but the beginning and end times are staggered. So he has to be there uh, an hour before she has to be there. And then there's he had he now has like various pickup times that I can pick from. But of course, I have to tell them what time I'm going to be picking him up just because they no longer allow parents in the building. So it's not this sort of like flexible uh, pickup time where you can just walk in and be like, I'm here now. Please, you know, wrap it up and come home. Uh, they basically bring out the kids in badges. And so you have to let them know what badge your kids needs needs to be in. So right now I'm working on the logistics. I really had this lofty, lofty goal that my daughter was going to ride her bike to school and ride it back by herself a little bit further down the line. So right now, this week, I've been riding to school with her, with the baby in the back, either on the, on like the backseat or in the trailer. And then I have, uh, rode my bike up there in the afternoon uh, to pick her up and then loop over to his school, put him in the trailer and then ride everybody back. And it's about like a mile and a half, which I think is a little bit more than I thought it was and a little bit, maybe a little bit more than she can manage. So I'm a little discouraged by how that first week has gone. Um, that's my biggest challenge is just like the logistics of pick up and drop off. But, she, but we'll, I'm confident that I'll figure that out and I might just eventually cave. But the there's just I just do not appreciate standing in line in the car and just waiting for my kid to come out. It bothers me so much that I have to like find a workaround somehow. Uh this is a really I and I realize that this is like a really really small complaint compared to like what some other um 
what some other parents are going through, especially those that are, you know, doing the whole homeschooling thing. I've seen a lot of things online on Instagram, other people sharing how they're starting the school year off at home. And I just have to say kudos to anyone who is doing that. That seems just so unreal to me that that's going on for so many parents. And I'm considering myself very, very lucky that I at least had this week of, you know, working from home by myself with the kids in school. Um, I don't know how long it's going to last, especially with everything going on, but I'm sure we'll talk about that more. I feel like that's a lot for me already. Uh, I think I can probably share a little bit more as we work through the episode. But Aaron, how's what's your setup? What are your biggest challenges and how what's everybody doing? So we all kind of went back at the same time, which was August 24th, and I myself was not sure what I'd be doing in the fall. And there was some back and forth, again, kind of all based around the COVID data. And as you've mentioned, while some colleges are still meeting in person, ultimately my college made the decision to move everything that was supposed to be a face-to-face class, with the exception of lab classes, where that work can only be done in person, to a virtual environment. And this is interesting because on the one hand, I have taught for our online college, but that's slightly different. And our online courses are asynchronous. So basically, with that, I can post a video lecture, I can post um, information and readings, but then the part of it that's um, with the students is that they can kind of do it on their own terms, right? That is asynchronous, meaning they still have due dates for everything, but they can pick and choose when they want to watch my video lecture. Maybe that's at 2 a.m. or whatever it is. Well, with our new courses in this virtual environment, that means it is synchronous. Um, And so I'm hosting, like many people around the country now, I'm hosting online live meetings of my courses. There's that. Um, And my kids, they, yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. I think that it's been nice to have them back for a couple of weeks just to see them having somewhat of a normal schedule. I still approach it with a bit of trepidation because I'm just always waiting for that other shoe to drop. Like, okay, one day down, will we be back tomorrow? You know, it's just feel that's, I feel like it's a a ticking. I don't want to mix my metaphors too much here, but I'm just, you know, whatever you want to say there, it's like, okay, one day down and what's going to happen next. But I have to say their energy levels have been up. Getting up for school hasn't been the problem that I thought it would be. It's actually been pretty seamless. And even for myself, I was worried because I really haven't had to have that strict schedule since March, right? I mean, once we kind of went to this, like, we're all at home, I hadn't been, you know, getting up that early. But that part of it's been going pretty well. Like you said, the logistics of pickup, I think, again, it's coming from a very privileged position for myself, but it's staggered. So the pickup process for me, for my three daughters, because they're in such different grades, it's like eighth grade, sixth grade, and second grade, they stagger them so that all the kids are not coming out all at once, right, to allow for social distancing. It ends up being like 30 to 40 minutes of me waiting and just, you know, I do get out of my car, but something that you mentioned when I was thinking about the biking, um, the the way that they're having everyone kind of assemble in the morning is that there's little dots <laughs> that everyone stands on. Uh, they're six feet apart. It's it's very well organized. And the classes, you know, they start obviously with the youngest classes first, but they're staggered. So everyone's not just running in there. But I'm wondering how long that will maintain because in Michigan, we have those awful Michigan winters. And then the falls are usually pretty bleak and cold and rainy. So I'm just wondering what that's going to look like in even a few weeks, right? Sounds great right now. I feel like everything's spread out. But what happens when it gets rainy, when it's snowy? And I mean, there was even one day where we just had a torrential downpour. And I'm like, I guess you just go in. So while even, you know, it's like we have all this planning, right? Planning and these plans put in place. There's a lot that we can't account for. Yeah, and there's there are always things that they're really strict about at the beginning of the school year, and then three months in, you wonder whatever happened to that, right? Uh, and so I think the social distancing, they're not doing that well with at my school. All the kids are wearing masks, and they're not letting anyone in to the building if the mask is not over their noses and things like that. So that seems to be working pretty well. But I also, so I drop her off on my bike and then I kind of just walked by to see how they're letting everybody into the building. And at my daughter's school, they're doing little groups 
I don't see a lot of social distancing happening. Like the dots that you're describing, that's not something that they're implementing at all. There were two or three adults at the building that were letting the kids in one by one and making them use some hand sanitizer as they're walking into the building. And they were reminding them, you know, keep your distance. But I was almost wondering if that wasn't just for my benefit because I was in earshot. I don't know how much that's actually happening when there aren't parents around. Um, I did see, like I said, everybody wearing masks and that was a positive surprise for me, especially with my daughter. I was really, really concerned about the fidgeting and the, uh, the just touching the mask and moving it around and being uncomfortable with it. I had kind of tried to get her used to it the week before that was going to be my hack, but that's not helpful to anybody now because school, the school year already started. But I, when, when she was watching TV the, the week before I had her wear her mask because I figured she would be so distracted that she could kind of get used to the feeling of the mask on her face without like constantly pulling at it because she was so sucked into the, into the television. And that worked pretty well and it didn't bother her. And she's been doing a good job wearing it on her way to school. Even I've been telling her, you don't need to wear it while we're riding over there, but she puts it on and she's like, mom, this is going to be really nice in the winter when it's cold out. And so, and she came back one day from school and was like, the masks are actually making it kind of fun. And they gave her a little lanyard um, to hang on to the mask. And so that seems to be going really, really well. And my son too, he does not mind wearing it. I got a whole slew of them. I got, I don't know where you got yours. I don't want to advertise, but these are the ones that work for me. We got a five pack from old Navy. I like those the best actually. And then target had, um, two packs for $4, which I think is really affordable and nice. And those are reusable and they have like the little cutout, like the shape that goes over their noses. And those, those seem to be working really well too. So that's my, that's my tip for anybody who's still looking into masks. Those work really well for my kids and they like wearing them. I've got a ton now. So, you know, every time when they come home from school, they go straight, they know this now, they go straight upstairs, they change, they put everything in the dirty laundry, including the mask they wore that day, they wash their hands and then they are good to play. And then we have uh, the stash of clean masks by the front door. So when you're leaving, you know, those are all clean and you grab one and you go. That's actually because you asked about successes earlier. That's why I'm going into so much detail with the mask because I was super concerned about the mask beforehand. And I'm actually really surprised by how well that's been going. Um, is that something that your family is still struggling with or are you doing okay with the mask? Um, so, so I would say, and you, that's a good point that you bring up, which is one of the rules for the school is that it has to be washed every night. And so that immediately eliminates those little paper masks, which I had a number of, um, from earlier on, one of my friends that teaches in the medical field, I actually had probably 10 or 20 of those from the winter time, which is interesting because there was a lot going around before COVID. And so my friend had given me these masks and um, they're all gone now. I was going to Seattle. So she gave me a bunch of these masks and literally it was like the week after, whoa, COVID showed up in the Seattle airport. And I'm like, well, I'm glad I had the masks. But um, we too, we bought some from Costco, you know, and they're they're reusable and they're kind of stretchy. And I was worried about that a little bit as well, especially with my youngest daughter. But, you know, you mentioned this earlier, and I think children sometimes just have a better time falling in line with the new rules. Probably we could do a whole social critique of that and how our society sets us up to be good citizens. Again, I feel like I always want to reach towards like the theories of Michel Foucault and thinking about how we kind of like pre-program them to like follow the rules, right? And school does that. I mean, it really does. It preps them out to be law-abiding citizens in a way, right? And this is the social norm and this is a social contract. Of course, my kids aren't thinking any of that, but they fell in line, you know, because they see everyone else is doing it. I have to say when I what you were talking about, though, I wondered too, even though the teachers are doing their very, very best to keep everyone within that six feet, you know, a four or five year old doesn't know what six feet is. And four and five year olds are so excited about the world and seeing their friends now again. And it seems almost sad, but impossible. So I feel like it's a tricky situation for educators. And that's, I think that's the sort of challenge that my husband and I have been talking about even right now. It's a holiday weekend. 
on the one hand, you want to feel this somewhat sense of normalcy, right? That like, okay, we're just hanging out. We're going to go for a bike ride or a walk or hang out on the beach. But then there's always this looming, you know, the more data I read sounds pretty scary, right? The lasting physical ravages of COVID. And I feel like the more we get away from thinking about that, the easier it is to forget that it is a deadly disease for many. So, you know, I don't know. That's a tangent, but the masks, they've been doing well. I think it's that social distancing, that staying six feet apart. That's going to be a challenge, especially for the little ones. Right. Absolutely. I agree with that. And that's something that my daughter does complain about the most, too, that recess isn't quite the same. And, and you know, the, the way that the classroom is set up, that doesn't bother her so much. I think the way that they have the classroom set up is like all the desks are facing, you know, the same the same way and they're kind of spread out um and i had some concerns about that in terms of like pedagogy earlier before the beginning of the school year but then at the same time you know that's how i learned and and that's you know that's how we learned and it might not be optimal and it might not be up to the current you know the current research and how kids learn best but at the same time even that type of learning is probably more beneficial to my daughter than other scenarios. Well, I don't think that I would be able to teach her much if she was home with me. And so it's sort of, I was talking to my neighbor about this and she said, you know, it feels like we've all just had crappy options. And I think that's, that's very true in this scenario. Everybody has to kind of pick between, um, the, what's the least right. crappy option. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. No, um, exactly. So. Right. What's the lesser of the evils, exactly. right? Going back to, you know, the idea of the remote learning and what those challenges were for me and how that put a strain on everything. And now I'm seeing it firsthand from my point of view, which is I'm working with adult learners in an online format. And a lot of my students, adult students, really wanted a face-to-face class. And I understand, I understand the pull and the attraction of online courses. Ours are accelerated. So that's kind of like this really great thing that people can get done with a degree in like two years and be out and yeah, out in the workforce um, for the different limited enrollment programs like nursing. So someone could go from not working in a professional field to being a nurse in a couple of years. And that's those online classes are accelerated and that's great. But the other half of that coin is that I have students that are like, no, I I want to be sitting with you. I want to be working with you. I need face-to-face instruction because for whatever reason, I like to hear my teacher talk about it. I like to see it written on the board. I like to be able to ask you questions in person. And so some of those challenges that I had with my own young students, my kids, are the very same ones now that I feel like are kind of affecting me in my instruction online. We have all these great tools, and I don't mean to slam Zoom or Skype or Google Meets or any of those things, but I feel like they're just a lot more, there are a lot of logistical challenges. I think we talked about this with the conferencing barriers. Um, One thing that has been happening to me a lot in this last week is I will have my class meeting and I'll be like, does anyone have any questions? So is, that any, is there anything anyone needs to know? Anything at all, please. You can put it in the little chat box. Ask, ask me in front of people. And no one says anything. Then I immediately log out. And I have like, one day it was like 19, 19 emails from students. And I mean, that's all part of my job and I'm happy to answer those. But I just, I'm like, well, what is it about that mode that they don't feel comfortable saying it? in the meeting. I just thought it was really strange. And this, and this has been like, you know, the first I've already had two weeks of class. And so now I'm just being pummeled with these after class emails. And, you know, most of them are really quick responses. But I, I said something in the last meeting, like, please just say these during the meeting, because probably someone else has the same question. Exactly. But, exactly. You know, <laughs> so yeah, it could that's, be relevant you know, to everybody else in the classroom, for sure. Right. That's like, you know, and teaching 101. <laughs> and yeah, and that's a lot. That's a lot of extra. That's a lot of extra time that you're spending now on teaching that you could be spending thinking about, you know, creating your next video or giving feedback on papers that's going to, co- you know, further down the semester, that's going to come out of your time of grading and things like that, where they could actually get some more, you know, valuable feedback from you in that way, rather than having questions answered that you could answer inside the class for speaking quickly and maybe answering the same question for multiple students. But now that's coming out of your time and your day. That seems 
frustrating. I would be frustrated if I was in your shoes for sure. Right. I think the other challenge for me is just making sure the class seems lively. And yeah, I don't know that the excitement or the kind of organic quality of a face-to-face class can ever truly be replicated in this online setting. I just think it's right. different to be looking at the static rectangle of your teacher's talking head. And I right. mean, I've been experimenting with our, um, that we're using Zoom, which is, it was pretty easy to set up. And that was one thing that I was really nervous about that went well, that again, not advertising for Zoom, but just, I was able to schedule all of my um, 32 class meetings in, in one sit setting. You can just say, you know, I want a repeating meeting on Tuesday and Thursday from 1 to 2.15. So that part of it was really easy. I do a lot of um, small group work in my class, kind of like, you know, making sure that we're having the students take ownership and the students are speaking out. So I tried this. Um, you can do breakout groups in Zoom. I don't know if you've ever tried that yet, where you break people into small groups. But it just, yeah, it's kind of, so I was like, okay, that's kind of like doing group work. That will be neat. But the thing is, I can't be, it's not the same as the physical space of a classroom where you can easily scan and make sure this group is staying on task and this group is still chatting and writing down notes. You have to enter in and out of each room and it takes about 30 seconds to go in and go out of the room. Once you go in and out of a room, the microphone is muted and maybe there's a setting that I need to change. So I start talking, you know, I'm a very talkative person. I'm like, okay, what's going on in this group? And they're like pointing and, you know, gesticulating, your mic's not on you. And I'm like, oh man. And so I just feel like keeping that liveliness and keeping the excitement. I mean, one, one of the notes I usually get back in my um, student evaluations is like, she's really excited. You can tell she really is passionate about the topic and she really cares, which is great. I want to be known for that, but I don't know if that's coming across in the same way. Yeah, that would be Um, hard do you find it a lively, engaging space to talk about ideas with your authors or with your coworkers? Or is it just me that feels like it's kind of flat sometimes? No, I definitely agree with that. So I have been working remotely since last summer, and we have our editorial board meetings via Zoom. So there's usually the people that are working on site are in the conference room, and then the people that are working remotely are, you know, on screen um, in the, via Zoom. And that is, so I've been sort of used to using Zoom before it became huge through COVID. Um, But I definitely agree that it's difficult to enter the conversation, especially in that scenario where I would be on screen and everybody else would sort of be in a room together. It's difficult to insert yourself in the conversation because the people in the room are having a lively conversation and then to sort of insert yourself in that is really awkward and uncomfortable and doesn't really work all that well. So I've and I'm not a person that speaks up a lot necessarily anyway. I usually wait and sit back and wait for other people to to carry the conversation and then maybe I'll insert something. So that's difficult for me to enter that conversation in the room. Now everybody went remote during COVID. Everybody stayed, everybody's working from home now. So our editorial board meetings and our team meetings are all online. When you start up a conference meeting that's in a room, there'll be little conversations going on everywhere. You can't do that in a Zoom meeting. So it's usually just, you know, people sitting quietly, still like writing emails or whatever, waiting for everybody to get into the conversation. And they tend to be very flat, as you say. There's no real organic conversation happening. It's very sort of bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, and then you log off. So you don't have that even, you know, as working as a team, you don't make the same, you don't have the same connections that you can make when you're in a room with each other because you won't necessarily engage in these like random side conversations. In terms of talking to authors, uh, I prefer Zoom Sometimes over phone calls, although it is all it is also getting to the point where some of my authors are like, I cannot do another Zoom call. Can we please just do a phone call? Right. <laughs> and right. that makes it that does make it easier for me, too, because I don't have to worry about, you know, what shirt I put on that day or whatever. I yeah, I 
with authors, I used to do a lot more just straight up phone calls. And now that people are more used to Zoom, I'm doing more Zoom. But like I said, also, there's also definitely that video chat fatigue going on where people are like, can we just please do a phone call? I do not want to do yet another Zoom meeting. I got that this week. And, you know, that worked for me, too. So I think that the and that's that's sort of like from a team perspective. I don't know how you would keep uh, students engaged because they are supposed to be listening everybody can't be talking at the same time but at the same time there's got to be some sort of response from them and some sort of ability to for them to talk to each other I feel like that like just thinking about this and you can make you can obviously speak to this a little bit more but I feel like you know when you're in a seminar you can somehow just become a moderator of a conversation among students and I would assume that if you're in a Zoom meeting, it is much more likely that if you can get students to engage, they probably are more likely to engage directly with you unless you do the breakout rooms. I don't know. Is that something that you've observed? I was just thinking when you were talking, again, how our con- our conversational uh, styles are different. And when you were talking about kind of quietly waiting, my problem is I feel like this nervousness to fill up a silence with words. And you know this about me. And so I think conversely, I have a different problem, which is that when it's just so silent that I feel the need to say something. And so I feel like I don't in the past, like you said, I can go around and really put the onus on the student and let them sort of like drive the narrative of the class or whatever you want to say. But now I feel like it's just becoming this, I don't want it to be just me and my voice, right? Because there are a lot of students that choose not to show their video. And I said that was okay. I, because here's the thing, you know, and some of my colleagues were like upset and asking me for directions about this. I'm like, look, it's, we're saying this is like replacing the classroom, but here's the thing. A lot of people leave their homes to come to class, and it's a whole different space. What if they're coming from a situation where they're, you know, not, maybe they're ashamed of, like, what their the inside of their home looks like, you know? What if it's messy? What if it's chaotic? What if they live in a place that they don't want everyone to see? You know, and coming to class, you're just yourself. You're in class. So maybe they don't want to show that. Maybe they have younger siblings around that they don't want on the screen. So I said, you know what, that's up to them to decide whether or not they want to share their video. But then it's like all just names and no one's really talking. And so there is just like that silence. Um, Then I was thinking when you were talking a little bit more about when I have meetings with my full, you know, different administrative meetings, I feel like there's a sort of performative aspect of, okay, I better just say something so they know I'm still listening. And then as you're speaking too, I'm like, there's got to be, for anyone that's like thinking about dissertation projects, what are we going to call it? Like the Zoomification of America or for someone in like organizational theory or rhetoric, I'm like, there will be some really interesting research coming out of all of this, thinking about communication, about the workplace. I think so many people really across the fields could be doing some really, if you want to make, you know, something good out of this whole situation, I think there could be some really interesting research studying how this impacts the organization, higher education. I mean, I'm sure people are already thinking about this. So thinking about all this and thinking how it's kind of affected me is one thing, but something that we always like to connect back to and something that I always think is really relevant to the research that you did um, in your graduate studies is like maternity. And so I know you wanted to talk a little bit more about issues relating specifically to mothers. And so I wondered if you wanted to speak a little bit more to that. You had some thoughts about, you know, how this might be impacting or affecting mothers differently during the pandemic. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to tr- talk a little bit. I'm going to come a little bit from a personal point and then kind of take it from there because I ended up at the end, toward the end of the summer, deciding that I was going to reduce my work hours a little bit because I was really having a hard time keeping up with the 40 hours that I was supposed to be working. Uh, I, you know, over the summer, I had all three kids home and my son was kind of in and out. So it was either two or three kids that were home with me. And I was able at certain parts of the day to use to put my older daughter to task with babysitting the younger daughter. So I was still able to get those eight hours in. 
but I was really concerned about what was happening, you know, once the school year started, I'm sort of anticipating that the schools will close periodically and that I'll have either one or both of the older ones home with me for days or weeks at a time. And just to be able to sort of account for that, I decided to cut my work hours just by a little bit. One of the reasons, one other reason that I did that was that I'm not 100% comfortable with bringing a babysitter into the home. So that might be, you know, people might be like, well, that's a little hypocritical because you're sending your older kids to school, um, but you don't want to have a nanny for the younger one. That's, that may well be true, but it's just sort of, was what felt right for me. I had a babysitter before that was a student at the college here and looking at the numbers and looking at what's happening there, I do feel confirmed in my decision not to uh, not to work with a college student right now for babysitting services. And so that's sort of the route that I'm taking. And I, I'm wondering if that's not, you know, true across the board where, you know, the any article that I've read over the last few months that discusses this really points out how much more the women are bearing the brunt of all of this. And again, I already mentioned this earlier, looking to social media and looking at Instagram and what people are sharing. <clears throat> and I remember also the the conversation that we had with Ashley in that context to the idea that you're setting yourself up, that you're setting your kids up at home with a workspace and overseeing their homeschooling and keeping them engaged in schoolwork. We, you know, we've, we've talked about this in relation to Zoom already today for the older students, but I also find this really difficult to imagine keeping my eight-year-old engaged in schoolwork where I am the person overseeing all of that while then also at the same time working full-time to me just seems like an, a daunting, like an unmanageable task. And so I'm really still continue to be concerned about what this is going to do for the majority of working mothers. And part of the reason too, that I descended, that I decided to send my daughter back to school was that, you know, I felt that I would not be able to keep my job. And I don't know. To I, I was struggling with that, and I was feeling guilty about it because you know I feel you know is it worth risking her health and safety to protect my career and everything that I've put into my career? But ultimately, I felt that her safety wasn't you know threatened to the degree that that obviously you know if I felt that she was going to get everybody sick and and things like that, then I w wouldn't have made this choice. But at the same time, you know, the, the guideline that we got from the school was they were asking, you know, they were asking if people can keep their kids at home and choose the online route that they should. And I got really hung up on this. Like, what does it mean? Can I keep my kids at home? Right. What are the, right. what are the commitments? What are the sacrifices that we're asking individual families to make? And is it, is like sacrificing my career, is that sort of encompassed in this can, right? Does that make sense? Um, right. And I keep always wanting to think of single parents and particularly single yeah. mothers because what is the challenge then? And you're given this really either or mode of thinking, right? Like I can either work and have my child at school, but it's really hard to work from home. And I've been enduring those challenges myself, not so much just because I don't have support, but it's just a, it's a hard place to work from. And we've been talking about this a lot, but my kids and my family seeing me online and maybe not realizing that I am at work, trying to find a quiet space to think, but then also trying to do this other kind of work of like posting and making professional content and videos to share with students. So I see that, but then I think, well, what if I was, you know, a single mom and trying to do this, how does this work? And so we had a lot of like um, interesting news articles and I want to kind of skip ahead to one that I saw because I think everything that you're saying kind of culminates here, which is this idea that people are starting up these pods. And this was something that we talked about, but it's wealthy families starting up the pods because the one I saw came from Colorado, but I had also looked at a, an article that I believe was from Alabama and they were kind of celebrating this teacher who was like, you know what? I'm not doing this. I am not going to put my life on the line in the middle of this pandemic to go into the school and teach. So the teacher quit her job and, you know, found like five families that 
paid her to have this pod. And so this was kind of this like almost celebration for her because she, you know, instead of having her life on the line, she felt it was much more safe to teach a pod with like five students and she was getting paid handsomely. So that is great in theory. But again, it comes back to, well, what if we have a single parent who is a graduate student, perhaps, um, or maybe an assistant professor working her way up the tenure track, you know, without a lot of options? How does that work for them? Right? How what does that look like? And so it puts a lot of strain on the parent, but particularly, I think the mothers, as you mentioned. So I think this is kind of really once again, making some of these discrepancies and inequalities really stark in this setting, right? That we're starting to really see how this affects our mothers in the workforce, for sure. Absolutely. I was thinking about, you know, people homeschooling now. What is the cost involved in that as well, right? So that's another that's another thing. There's all these tips, all these articles about, you know, this is the kind of workspace that your child should have. And these are the these are the supplies that you're going to need and things like that. And that's usually all all supplied by the school or it should be by the school. Of course there's this whole other aspect of teachers having to buy supplies, which I am just, my argument's always coming from the assumption that the school supplies what the main things that are needed. And I don't know exactly, I should probably talk to more teachers about what, how much money they're actually personally investing in supplies for their students. But assuming that, you know, the, the things like the desk setup and all those kinds of things, the, the Chromebooks that are being supplied, all of that all of that stuff becomes a cost. Does it not become a cost factor when we're keeping our kids home? So like, so the question is, you know, to the question to me becomes very much about equity and equality, like you're saying, right? I think, and I think, and you, um, you have, you, you've mentioned this earlier about uh, Foucault and the way that schools are sort of the system that, introduce our kids to society, I actually think that that's an important role that schools have, right? It's We need to sort of get our kids somewhat into a space where they can function in the society that they're growing into for better or worse, right? And right, we can, right. of course, we can be critical of that. And I hope that critical thinking is part of that education that, that they're receiving. But I do think that public schools have an important function in society where, you know, I, we pay taxes into a pot and then, you know, the, that money should be used to create an educational system that picks up the kids where they are and then sort of creates a more, it creates a society where equity is more of a thing. And I realize that that's idealistic and that, that that's not necessarily how it works, but it's very upsetting to see that this, that the spread of COVID has created a more, even more um, of a gap between those who can afford certain things and those who cannot. And I don't know that, you know, I don't know if it's always better to the, if the homeschooling is more efficient in all cases or the schooling on site is more efficient in all cases. I think it very much depends on the individual situation and the, and the parent and what the parent is willing and able to do and the relationship between the kids and the parents. There are a lot of factors, but it's very upsetting to see sort of the, the idea that public schools, we can just do without them and they don't have a right. specific function um, or at least those, the, you know, the the wealthy people, those who can afford to sort of take their kids out of the public schools, uh, can can do without that that system. I think that increases the individualization. That's already a huge factor. I see that very critically. I agree. You know, I know I'm like, there is an important part of that, which is like learning to interact with the other and understanding, we talked about this before, but understanding that there are people that are different, that come from different circumstances. And there's a lot with that. I would say that's almost just as important as the curriculum, because I have one child who would love to just, would love nothing more than to continue to do school online. But for him, 
he needs the socialization. That's why I've never put him in an online program because I think that aspect of school is important for him. He needs to have that time with his peers, whether (laughs) he enjoys it or not. I mean, everyone's going to be a person in the world one day and have to learn how to deal with people that have different points of view, that have different personalities that we may or may not find abrasive or annoying. Um, And so I think part of, you know, his education in high school, he's constantly telling me about people that have annoyed him and and rightly so. I mean, some of the things he tells me, I'm like, oh yeah, that would have really um, annoyed me as well at that age. But that's the real world too. You know, we run into coworkers and other folks um, that may not share our political beliefs that we kind of have to negotiate that and navigate those challenges as adults as well. So to me, I think what you're saying, the school does have a very important function. And I also have a relative who works as a superintendent of schools in more of a northern remote area of Michigan. And he wrote a really interesting piece um, in his local newspaper the other day about how he was just so overjoyed that they went back. And he said it was a really special time. Um, His name is Steve Locke. He is my cousin's husband. And he was writing about how, A, the school is a safe space for many students. We've talked about this already, but this is a space here in America. I don't, I can't speak to the rest of the world, but I'd be curious to see. In some instances, the school is the place where a student receives all three of their meals for the day. They not only get a breakfast and a lunch, they have a take-home dinner as well. And that's the, that's the, yeah, that's the only place they're receiving their meals. Secondly, he wrote about how instances and reports of child abuse have gone way down. That's not because child abuse has ended through this pandemic, but that the teachers are the ones on the front lines that often report those cases of abuse. So we have a lot of children falling, falling into like this um, liminal space where their teachers were the ones that would identify the fact that they're being neglected or abused, but because they haven't been at school since March, there's no report. So that's really a terrifying thing to think about. And he mentioned that, you know, and so he mentioned that. And then for a lot of people, it is if these students are in an abusive home, the school is like their favorite spot. That's a safe space, right? That's a place where they have some respite. They know that they're not going to be hurt or yelled at. And so again, that's, you know, that's just really important. That's a really important function of our school, especially in places urban and rural, right, where there are students that might be living, you know, at the poverty level that don't have all those things. If we switch over to homeschool, if you're already, you know, if a family is already at the poverty level, do they have the means or the money to buy all of this? I don't think so, right? I think that's going to be another challenge. So then again, that child is just falling, you know, so it's just such a hard um, decision to make right now or to think about because, always in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, but what about, you know, the fact that this is a life-threatening disease? But then what about the fact that for some students being at home is life-threatening sometimes, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's what you made me think about when you were talking about that. One of the things that I thought about was just the importance of making that uh, personal connection before they go back to online learning. So, I was, we were watching the school board meetings the couple weeks leading up to the start of school just to kind of see what they had come up with, what the plans were, um, and what this school year was going to look like. And they didn't say this explicitly, but it became very clear to me that they are very much anticipating going back to online at some point in the school year. Uh, I don't know that there is a specific plan as to what it's going to take or what the numbers are going to have to be or how this is going to play out. But there is a very clear sense that once it stops being safe for students to be in school, they will send them home and they will transition to remote and online learning for everyone. And that to me was something where I decided, okay, I think I'm going to just go ahead and trust in the judgment of the people that are in charge. They are telling me right now it's safe. They're telling me it's probably not going to be safe the entire school year. And once it's not, we will let you know and we will tell you to keep your child home. And so that's what the decision was. And that might be, again, a little naive. Uh, I, I don't think that everybody would probably agrees, agree with that trust. But I just had to sort of put my trust somewhere, I think. And that's what I went with. And so to me, then at that point, I felt the benefit of having that personal connection between the student 
the teachers, the other students that would probably give them a for from my perspective a better start to the school year and again I realized not everybody had that choice a lot of schools started online right away so right and I'm, and I'm sure that you know those of us those those of you that are listening that started the school online I'm sure that everybody is you know is doing a great job making it work for them and their kids um, so this was just I had that choice available and that's what I went with because I was really uh, struggling with everybody being home and sort of keeping keeping a a peaceful and positive atmosphere at in my home. And so this was an important thing for me. So it's not always just a matter of um, if you if you think about it, you, you know, the cases that you're mentioning are so important. There's so many families where the kids are not safe at home. But then just kind of thinking back a little bit, I think there are also a lot of places where maybe just being on top of each other at all times doesn't necessarily lead to uh, positive relationships either. And so even if there's not particular abuse or neglect happening, and so that's something that I have been thinking about um, a lot. Right. And I'd be curious to see, because we're in this very peculiar situation here in the United States, I mean, this is a global pandemic. So is this still playing out in your home if you live in Europe, if you live in Africa, if you live in Asia? Is this something that's affecting you? Or is this just still, again, because we just can't seem to get it together here? You know, I mean, I know I've read the headlines about places like New Zealand where it was just handled so much more effectively and efficiently. So I'd be curious to know if others across the world are struggling with these same questions or if this is a strictly, you know, American problem right now of our own making um, because of poor leadership and poor decisions at all levels. Um, And it's interesting because we're talking a lot about how this plays out for us as parents, but then to sort of kind of jump into the other aspect of our podcast, which is being an academic, what does this look like at the college level and what is the expectation? And so one thing I've been reading about, actually, I have one um, article from a particular college, but this idea that people have been told not to reveal um, people, faculty members, I should say, that please, please don't um, talk about COVID with your students faculty kind of wanting to share the information with the press and the public, but there was this pushback, um, the administration saying, well, no, uh, privacy, HIPAA laws, you can't talk about this. But at some point, you know, I think the faculty, I myself, I'm a very transparent person. I'd want to say, yes, class, you know, there are more and more cases, let's stay safe. But I thought that was an odd one. And then we also read about this week, the um, sick out, right? And that was in a couple of places that was posted that in Iowa, Uh, The faculty, staff, and students stage a sick out um, where they wanted to bring an end to -to face-to-face instruction during the pandemic, that they felt like their administration had not made the right call. And so they staged this sick out where people were protesting in that manner. So I wonder if we're going to see more of this. Um, Did you have any other kind of factoids or what's happening um, with the college in your town as far as like, is there a tipping point? Is there any literature or writing about what's going to happen? I mean, what's the official policy? Like, will they switch over? Is there any sort of thought about that in your college town? That's a really interesting question. I think there's a lot there from from what you're saying. It seems to me that the more we're, uh, the more we're getting into the next semester, and I know this too from other faculty that I've talked to, there's this real antagonism between the the faculty and the administration. And I think that's also building up that ha- I think that has been building up for a variety of different reasons over the last few years. And here I see like a real culmination where, you know, the people that are in the classroom are not involved in making the decisions. Right. And I see that here at Central Michigan, where a lot of students are calling um, for closures or for more decisive action, I think is absolutely irresponsible. This is something that I struggle with 
every time I see it, not to share this information with the public. I don't think that it's the professor's job to share with fellow students that there may or may not have been a positive case in the classroom. I think, but I do think that information needs to be shared. Right, right. Like we're not outing the student, right? Like, well, we can see that so-and-so is absent. So clearly they have COVID. I think that that is not what I'm talking about. No, no, I know. But that like, but the idea that like a professor is not allowed to bring it up in the classroom. Well, who is then who is contacting the students that have been in touch with them? The article that you shared with me was very disconcerting to me because it seemed that the school policy was basically like, well, if they're wearing a mask and they're social distancing, then there is no danger. And that's just not accurate. That can still spread it. You know, the masks are decreasing the chance of spread. And that's the best sort of tool that we have right now, I think, to keep it in check. But that doesn't mean that it can't still uh, spread. And what they're doing here at the university, I think, is a little bit more active. They're they're doing some contact contract tracing. They're making sure that when somebody tests positive, they are getting in touch with everybody that was in close proximity with them. But they also have rules there. It's like they have to be they have to have been in the same room with that person for more than 15 minutes over the last 48 hours. I think that's how they're going about it. They're using their they have the help of the health department, the local health department, and they reach out to people and they ask all those people to quarantine. It seems to me, and this is, I don't have evidence for this, but this is sort of anecdotally that they're not even testing all of those people. They're just asking them to quarantine. And I think that's a huge issue with, uh, with looking at these numbers. So as I've said earlier, we have gone from under 200 cases to over 500 or 600 cases now. Most of those are at the university or they have connections to the university. So they originally, originally it started spreading at the university. There's all this news reporting. There's videos on Twitter. There were three parties during Welcome Back Week that were off campus where, oh the, where it all started. However, and this is something that I that I'm interested in that I hadn't thought about before. There's also smaller there there's also smaller uh gatherings that they were having. I and I've overheard people at the grocery store. I've talked to my neighbor, right? So there are different stories about people that knew that they had it that they they still went out because they didn't want to miss out on the fun. There's a story going around town about one uh, person who had it and her roommate threw a party anyway, even though this girl was supposed to be uh, isolating. Oh, and boy. so and so there's just all of these sort of like poor choices that you can kind of expect college students to make, but you would hope that they don't kind of thing. And where we went to college, there wasn't that much interaction between the college community and the community surrounding it, right? Uh, so I hadn't really taken this as seriously, maybe leading up to it as I should have. Here in Mount Pleasant, the the college really is the community. Uh, there, all of the or almost all of the daycare centers in town, as well as the aftercare program at school, rely on college students for staffing. So um, most of the daycares daycares in town have already had to shut down temporarily because they had students working for them that tested positive for COVID. Oh gosh. Right. Um, And then it wasn't necessary. And then, so then it goes through a process of like the health department quarantines, everybody that was in close proximity to those employees. And now there's, there, there's uh, staffing shortages. So they have to close down. Right. And so um, there's just, and the same would, I anticipate that the same is going to happen with the aftercare programs as well. And some of these students are asymptomatic. They work, they go to work, they're asymptomatic. This is again, anecdotally, but you know, the, uh, one of them, the, the mom was concerned because she saw all the numbers. She asked her daughter to get tested and she had it and she had, she'd had no symptoms whatsoever. So that's my question. How many people are walking around there that have no symptoms, symptoms that just aren't getting tested because they have no symptoms. Right. Um, right. And what is the, what is the, what value does this number have uh, if there's such low testing available and provided? And so when I went to there, so I keep eyeing this, I keep looking at this. 
And when I went to their website to figure out, okay, what's their plan? When are they going to shut down? They basically are saying that there is no set threshold or number of cases that would trigger a shift to remote instruction. And so they're saying there's a variety of factors. They're working with the health department, um, input from the local hospitals and healthcare providers, as well as um, direction from state leaders, which we've talked about this before. Uh, the Michigan governor has actually been very much sort of on the forefront of cutting things down and, and keeping the rules pretty tight. But it sounds to me like they're waiting from an order from her Um before mm. they're going to before they're going to do anything. Aaron, before this episode, you had shared with me um, the numbers from Wayne State. And Wayne State is one of the few universities that actually has particular thresholds. Um, the, the article that you sent me states that they would transition to online and send everybody home. So if testing shows positive cases within the university community to exceed 15 percent. Or if fewer than 15% of hospital beds and intensive care unit beds are available. So I like here that they're specifically talking to the, to the hospitals that would have to sort of jump in if the, if the pandemic were to sort of gain more strength again. However, I'm really concerned about that number of 15%, right? Because like I said, so, so at CMU, I think the number, the official rate currently is only 1%. But so that so that fifteen percent feels really really far away, and especially right. is going to stay that far away if they're not testing. Widely. Right, that's not really a valid reflection of what's really happening because, like you said, if many of these um, younger students, college students, are not showing symptoms, they're living their life, they're going to the Paneras and the coffee houses and the restaurants exactly. and using all the same services that everyone else in the community uses. They don't think they have any symptoms. They think they're safe. And then they're going out and spreading it and not getting tested. How would we ever know? And so exactly. I was I was kind of proud of our alma mater. Actually, uh, Wayne State is being sort of um, lauded in different in different capacities for having this plan in place, the tipping point metrics. But that makes sense because the um, president is actually a medical doctor, so I think he's a little more attuned to these things. Wayne State, though, again, is kind of a strange, I mean, it's a little different in that it's like an urban university spread out over 200 uh, acres or something like that. It's not the same, as you said, where, you know, in Mount Pleasant, the college is the town, right? Like you said, that exactly. like basically um, doubles the population of the city exactly. when the students come back. So it's a little different than Detroit, which is like spread out. It's one of the largest um, cities in the country because it's just so spread out. It's mm -hmm. kind of interesting space and place. It's not like Mount Pleasant where literally the college the college is. Um, I've been to other um, college towns like that as well, where it's like, no, that is the town, right? Everyone right. is kind of connected to the college in some way, shape or form. So, exactly. right. Those numbers, again, the data, everyone wants to always look at the data, but it can be misleading. Like when we said, there's also um, data that suggests not all that, you know, sometimes the tests come back um, and they're not correct. And it's just a lot to consider. Yeah. So we're yeah. thinking about all this as parents and as folks working in academia. So it, there's a lot to sort of think about. Um, I feel like we can continue to revisit this. And then, like I said, I'm really curious to see how this plays out or what this is looking like in other countries where the cases have still not quite come down. We kept saying that we're going to be entering the second wave. I don't know if we ever really got over the first wave. Yeah. wave. You know, <laughs> I think it's just been, if you look at the, um, again, to look at the data, kind of not ever really gone down in Michigan. We went down no. for a little bit when we had the really strict um, shelter in place orders. But like we said, once the weather got nice and once it was the holiday, the first um, Memorial Day holiday, they have been continuously rising and, you know, we went from having maybe a couple hundred cases a week or I'm sorry, new cases a day to it's back to like 700, 800, 900, which, you know, right. isn't looking too great for us. So I don't know. And if that's, you, you know, that's yeah, interesting ahead. to me, too, because that's the point where they where the lockdown order came. Right. We were at like or maybe a little bit more than that, but we were at that right that many new cases a day in march and then they shut everything down and i don't know what's different now is it just that we're asking everybody to wear masks and so like do we know more things i i mean i know we know more things about the pandemic now than we did in march but 
it's just surprising to me that are we just tired of lockdown? Do we just not want to do it again and we're just going to deal with it? Did we think in March if we shut it down for two weeks, we're going to get this all taken care of? And, and now we're seeing that that's not going to be the case. So we have to just kind of live with it. I don't know. That's yeah. I don't know how these decisions are being made, honestly. I guess my son knows, said the same really. thing because my son was not thrilled about going back to school face-to-face <laughs> and he just said he's like I think it's really weird we're literally at the same number of cases we were when we decided it was so dangerous and we had to shut everything yeah. down but I think right. the one thing that has changed is the number of deaths so maybe that's it right that one thing that I have oh, seen okay. that has continued to decrease is for a while we were having a large number of deaths related to covid and once again, is that some flaw in the reporting? I've heard a lot mm-hmm. of chatter that, well, they're just saying everything and anything is a COVID-related death. I don't I don't think our doctors are doing that. But from some of my more skeptical and conspiracy-minded um, yeah. acquaintances, yeah. they're like, well, uh, they're just writing everything as a COVID death. Because they get more funding for Right. Yeah, I've heard that COVID argument. Yeah. Right. And I don't know if that's even true. I'd love someone to chime in from the hospital infrastructure. I've just heard that these are the types of narratives that circulate in our communities. Mm-hmm. But I know that at least the state data suggests that the deaths are are very much lower. So um, I think I think we've done a really great job talking through everything today. And we're really hoping to get back into that talk about jobs and the job market. And I hate to say it, but this all ties into this pandemic as well. In our next episode, we're hoping to think about what it's like to apply for jobs in academia. What does that look like? What is that process? as well as, you know, what are the job prospects right now? So we're hoping to talk about that next. Judith, did you have any hacks or any reading information to share with us before we sign off today? I am still working on the same book that I was working on before. I'm not getting much reading done this week with school starting and everything. I don't know. How about you? Did you have uh, any, did you get any reading done? I was doing a little bit of reading, but I don't want to share it. I actually, this is something we can talk about in a later episode, um, the work of serving as a peer reviewer. And this is something, this is a first time role for me. And I thought it would be a good experience. And I really liked the way that the journal that I'm doing this for sort of described it. Whereas you're not, you know, obviously, again, it's a voluntary position, But they sort of pointed at the fact that, you know what, it's important. You probably have received that peer review and feedback throughout your career. True. Right. And so this is a way of kind of giving back to the community. And I thought it was interesting, too, that they said, you know, even if you recommend that this should not be published, your notes and your feedback can really help that writer grow and improve. And I thought about that. And that is really a true statement that I myself have been at different levels of publication where, you know, flat out rejected. Those are always, (laughs) those ones are always interesting. Then I, you know, and that was maybe I told you, I really, I sent out this thing when I was like a master's student. I'm so embarrassed about it, but, um, you know, growing that thick skin. And then maybe I sent out a couple things in my second year of my master's program and they were like, good argument, but really sloppy with a copy editing, which is surprising or not. And then maybe (laughs) getting to the next level, which was like, yeah, we think you have something here, but you need some major revisions. Okay. So that was like sort of the third level. And then finally, uh, thankfully getting to the level where they're like, yeah, this is really good. Have you just thought about maybe adding something from this other scholar here? And I love when people give me those clear review notes that are just like, we like this, this, and this, but maybe you want to add some, maybe this other scholar that looked at Carson McCullers would be helpful here. Here's the book. Mm -hmm. Do you want to add that? I love those types of review notes that are just so clear. So my long-winded answer was I was reading something to sort of help me make some sustained, helpful feedback to appear through the peer editing review, double blind review. So I'm not going to say what I was reading, but I did get through it. um, And I found it to be a really interesting process to be sort of on the other end of things, right? That Mm -hmm. I wanted to be mindful. I didn't want to be that reviewer that just comes across as mean unnecessarily, I suppose. And I really wanted it to be like they worded it, a helpful process where the person could look through my notes and I wanted to make them clear, but also like, this is what I think you could do. So um, that's where I'm at for reading. I dedicated my reading last couple of weeks thinking about that. And I don't (laughs) have any other hacks other than just trying to live my life one day at a time at this moment. So yeah, that seems like a pretty good um, piece of advice. I like that you take that so seriously that you went 
and and read some more on it that's really that's really great we get you know obviously all of all of the books that i work on are almost all of them go through peer review and the 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 peer reviews can be a really mixed bag and it's always really appreciated when somebody takes it seriously and understands the importance of the feedback uh that they provide and some of our some of our books really come come back a lot better at the end because of some useful advice that people have given at the peer review stage or recommendations for other texts that people should read uh, and things like that. So that's definitely going to be appreciated from, you know, a variety of different people. And I hope that what you were reading was fruitful for you in a personal way as well. It was. And so I think anything we can do like this, it's another, now it's another way of thinking about the work that we do. And so I appreciated the opportunity. I actually felt kind of like honored that I was even asked. I know that's a weird thing. Right. I was like, oh, that's really well, you're cool. Identified as an expert in the field, you know, that can provide helpful feedback. So that's really cool. That's neat for sure. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to close off today. Um, again, we're doing this in the, in the <laughs> within a pandemic with our collectively we have seven children <laughs> and so um, hovering in the background they are and it was funny because we already had to reschedule this one listeners because Judith and I were going to plan recording this a little bit earlier in the week and we we're both just so exhausted with everything happening and I just wanted to put that out there because there yeah. is a lot of planning and trying to really think about how we can do this in the best way for you to share our thoughts so I um, I think we're living it right as my husband says this is the PhD yes. and parenting podcast so you're going to hear some of that residual noise and I just did hear that knock 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 at my door but again thank you so much for listening we're hoping to have a really good talk about jobs coming up um, I appreciate your time. Judith, any closing thoughts or where can they find us online and on Instagram? So we're on Instagram at PhD in Parenting and then uh, if you want to shoot us an email, we ha- we're always happy to receive those and you can send that to Podcast at gmail.com Thank you so much for listening. Until next